I was looking at your your profile here, and uh, let me get back here. What exactly is a recreational mathematician? Now, wait. Um, let me let me preface this with: I'm probably going to talk to the smartest person that I've met this week, and you're going to probably talk to the dumbest. So go <laughs> slow for me. <laughs> okay. Well, recreational math really isn't that uncommon. Um, probably the most famous recreational mathematician. Uh, there's a guy named Martin Gardner uh, who wrote uh, articles uh, for monthly magazines back in the 60s and 70s um, about interesting mathematical oddities and so on. For instance, uh, like? Uh, well, the example I like to give, um, so you're familiar with patterns. Almost everybody is. Sure. Um, so Gardner wrote an article uh, about how patterns, or the mathematical term is called tessellation. There were only so many regular patterns that could exist or that were known to exist. And I believe at that time it was something like nine. Well, a California housewife decided <laughs> that that was an interesting thing to think about. And she developed her own notation and, and started working through and um, effectively doubled the number of really repeatable patterns known to mankind. Um, and I think, I think she took it like up to 17 and she wrote him a letter like two or three years later saying, Hey, you know, that was, that was a really great article. I really loved it here. Look, what but, I did. <laughs> right. and, and then he wrote another article saying, Hey, look at what she did. <laughs> um, and I saw, uh, I saw a paper maybe two years ago now, um, where, some topologists i think ended up i think it's somewhere in the upper 20s now like 26 27 really patterns known to mankind of regular tessellations of the plane um and other than interior decoration nobody has any use for any of these things <laughs> uh, how how often does just a random i don't want to say lay person but just a a not doing it as their job person, obviously doing recreational mathematics, come across things like this that, you know, I mean, obviously this is a very simple um, application use, but um, does this sort of stuff happen all the time that? Uh, well, I think, I think it's fair to say that it does. Um, think about the popularity of puzzle solving. Um, mm -hmm. Sudoku is like a global phenomenon. Um, there are actually, mathematical breakthroughs that occur in Sudoku. People uh, on the computational side write automatic puzzle solvers mm -hmm. um, that are that are very good. <clears throat> and then uh, one of my aunts is is into Sudoku and so I was looking at it and there's there's apparently a thriving puzzle setting community that among other things <laughs> tries to create puzzles that um, basically machines won't 
be able to solve in any efficient way. Really? Um, yeah. Uh, except for guessing. The machines are really, really good at guessing, and so they can kind of turbo guess their way in. Right. Um, and in that sense, there's also uh, game AI. Mm-hmm. Uh, chess is probably the most famous game AI, but um, video games are a you know hundred billion dollar sure. uh, uh, thing, and a lot of the a lot of the AIs against them are are have some basically systematic thing, sure. and things like World of Warcraft. Uh, uh, people kind of study and figure out like how the game reacts to stuff in order mm-hmm. to optimize what they're doing. So humans actually, we really like to have, you know, it, it triggers our, our, our instincts to sure. have an environment that we can analyze and, and, and work out how to extract rewards from it. Sure. Um, so on uh, something like, so you, it said you're a developer. Do you do computer development? Like what kind of, or is it? Uh, yes. Yeah. Are you building um, subdivisions? <laughs> per, yes. Professionally, <laughs> I generally write back office automation software. Okay. Um, so I've, I've written systems that uh, manage code bases, um, send emails, um, analyze data, all sorts of different things. How far do you feel that technology is getting out of the grant like so i grew up i don't know how old you are i'm i'm 45 so i grew up i'm older than you are okay so <laughs> i grew up with the uh, commodore 64 and the apple 2e and 2c and basic and all that stuff and then it you know it's you've morphed into the the microsoft and uh pcs and i i sort of understood how everything worked back then and now for the life of me like I could sort of explain how my phone works, but it's so far beyond any. Uh, I I couldn't break down to you how my cell phone works. Let's put it that way. I sure. kind of know. So how how far beyond super? Like, do you understand how your cell phone works? Well, I actually don't own a cell phone. Okay. Um, I do understand the principles involved in basic computation. Uh, which is actually the area of math that I like to think about for fun. Um, mm-hmm. It's pretty rare to to be interested in that area of mathematics. Um, the thing that makes this technology especially hard to wrap your head around uh, is the exponential expansion of the scope of that technology, which has been ongoing for longer than either of us have been alive. Right. Uh, you're probably familiar with something called Moore's Law, mm-hmm. uh, where transistor density essentially doubles every year and a half. Um, but the much simpler uh, sort of consequence of that kind of thing doesn't really occur to people. So if you double a number roughly 10 times, you get a number that's about 1,000. Um, so two to the 10th is 1,024. So if you're doubling something every 18 months, uh, then every 15 years, there's a thousand times as much right. going on. Um, Moore's law, 
has actually been tracked reasonably all the way back to the integrator machines uh, and analytic machines of Charles Babbage in the like early 1800s. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's it's been on that kind of scale more than two centuries of this every 15 years you get three more digits right um and even even just with computing technology uh we're over 50 years at this point so we're talking about a billion more digits and (laughs) there's or nine more digits a billion times as much right and there's the only other part of human existence that scales like that is the mind. Okay. Um, the we're getting we're getting our fastest runners are faster today than we were fifty years ago. But you say in Bolt, well, you know, he couldn't conceivably lose a race in like the nineteen fifty six Olympics or something. <laughs> right? Um, isn't isn't a billion times faster than those guys. Right, 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 right. He's not, he's not 10 times, he's not two times faster than those guys. He's, you know, incrementally 10, 20% right. faster than those guys. Um, and, and the same goes in every other sort of easy to quantify physical realm type thing. Um, you know, Strong men are lifting a lot more weight than they were 20 years ago. Um, professional athletes are, are a lot better. Mm-hmm. Human beings are generally healthier. There's a lot more of us. Right. Um, but for the kinds of spans that we're talking about, we're talking about things that are really only encompassable in the imagination. Sure. Uh, and and that's a very difficult thing to, to work through because there aren't good understandable metaphors for coping with it sure is moore's law still holding up even right now moore's law is hanging in there actually and there's another one i'm I'm terrible name so i can't remember it but um the doubling speed for uh disk so like storage Mm -hmm. um isn't 18 months it's 12 really uh yes so (laughs) so hard drives and this is also something people are very familiar with um, you know, in the 90s, gigabyte hard drives were, were becoming a thing. Uh, these days, terabyte hard drives, like we, most systems aren't even going to have a hard drive. You'll just use transistors and have solid state instead. Um, but if you do have a hard drive, it's it's just mind-bogglingly enormous. <laughs> right. Um, the So that's that's another that's another whole thing of, of just being able to store right. these insane amounts of information and that's funny because probably about once a year i go by some sort of memory whether it's for a, a gopro camera or my podcast thing or or whatever and uh every year i i'm standing there looking at the wall of memory and i'm like really like on this little thing, you can get a terabyte. Like it, right? It yes. boggles my. I remember like the five twelve k floppy disk, and you thought, "Well, this is cool. I can store things on that." And that, I mean, that's NASA um, had a eight k hard drive in the early seventies, and it was the size of a room. Crazy. Um, and 
and it was computer memory. Like even that was virtually unknown at that time. Um, and yeah, it's it's a it's a totally different ball game now. I I would love to like. It would probably be the most frustrating experience, but I'd love to try and play any game on some old '90s computer and just watch it melt down. Like, just see how bad. Like today's game, it probably wouldn't even start. Uh, it's 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 amazing the power that uh, we have computing wise, just as kind of throwaway stuff in gaming and and different things. Uh, yeah, yeah, it's 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 quite incredible, uh, and and that that is that's a major driving force for development of, of these things so do you think that the retail sector drives the innovation or do you think it's more military professional tech side or a combination of both uh it's it seems very much to be retail side for now because the primary uh driver for computational innovation is in the gpu mm -hmm. um this this these very high parallel systems uh for computing uh basically linear algebra uh have their primary value in graphics applications uh although we've adapted those things into um uh, training for machine learning neural net systems mm -hmm. which are also linear algebra based uh and people have adapted that into uh coin mining as mm -hmm. well, which is another big, big energy sink. Sure. Um, but, uh, but I, I think, I think gamers are, are still a big piece of that marketplace. And the companies that are developing these things at least seem to be still primarily developing them around that, that audience, mm -hmm. um, uh, at least at least insofar as their public statements and their their sort of marketing messaging. Sure. Um, you know. What I find funny is that the the crypto mining sort of piggybacked off the processors of gaming systems, uh, the graphics cards and stuff for the longest time there. And I'm not sure exactly. I think they're their own things now, but I think it's very similar technology. It 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 is, uh, and it's an interesting sort of fact of the history of technology all new technologies have to piggyback off the tech stack that exists mm -hmm. at the time of the present um and so you know telephones used uh the infrastructure of the telegraphs and and sure you know railroads used the infrastructure of the road and canal systems mm -hmm. uh and then and then highways use the infrastructures of the railroads and, and sort of there's this, you, you have to, you have to go to war with the, the army you got. <laughs> right. Right. Um, and so, yeah, if, if you've got some really great idea and all it needs is an entire society dedicated to working <laughs> it, then you're just never going to get off the ground. That, right. that chicken, that chicken ain't never going to lay that egg. Right. And, and you're not going to make it there. <laughs> Uh, so the, one of the reasons that I wanted to talk to you was I had, I have so many questions about the metaverse and more, I, I sort of understand the metaverse and everything that's coming out and, but NFTs have just, they hurt my head. I, I can't get around what they are and how they are. And 
the metaverse, I did some research for this podcast by watching Free Guy and Ready Player One. So, <laughs> so, I, I sort of started to see like, oh, okay, I'm getting this. And I watched my, little, my daughter play uh, Roblox and the different games she plays online. And I'm like, I can see how in the not so near future, uh, it's completely immersive. And in the near future, we're going to go from having a conversation like this, which is kind of weird and clunky. You're on a screen and I'm on a screen to we're recording something where we meet and it kind of looks like we have full bodies and we're sitting in a, you know, a, a lounge somewhere having this conversation and people watch that. So I, I can kind of understand that, but as it starts to go beyond that, I, I, I start to get confused. Like when they start selling re- real estate and, and all that stuff, I'm struggling. Yeah. Yeah, well, that's that's perfectly fair, and uh, a major reason I think for that is they haven't thought through any of that stuff any, either. Um, <laughs> they're just kind of throwing marketing messages out into the world, mm-hmm. and um, if if people buy them, then sure. then they'll take the money for them doing that. Um, so I guess uh, these are these are two sort of very different kinds of technology. Uh, that that you're talking about here. One, um, sensory human-computer interface mm-hmm. type things and how well that can work and what it can get up to. And the second, uh, digital presence, identity, existence types of things, uh, which, is, which is where the blockchain lives. Um, my... HCI, human computer interface experience, is is quite out of date. Um, <laughs> but uh, uh, are you familiar with a guy named Randy Pausch? I am not. Um, he basically got famous for dying. Uh, he wrote a book called The Last Lecture. I think it was pancreatic cancer that got him. Oh, I think um, I've heard of this before. Yes. Uh, so basically, like his, he knew he was going to die in a year, and so he wrote a book about knowing that you're going to die in a year and went on to sort of live his best life. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, he got to, he got to be an extra in the Star Trek movie, which, you know, everything he always wanted to do. Sure. Did. Um, and he was, he was a highly energetic, really inspiring guy. And I know that because I met him once He oh, was cool. at UVA while I was at UVA and I tried to get into his VR research team which turned out not to work out so well because he got an offer from Disney to become an Imagineer um, like three weeks after I tried to join the program. And so, yeah, so that didn't work out. Uh, But I did get to um, experience some of the testing and this was, you know, nineties VR with Mm -hmm. the like, you know, triangles and stuff. Um, And uh, they had a they had a couple of applications. Uh, the one they'd like to show off the most uh, was something called the King Kong Flight Director. Um, so it was a interface for controlling the airspace of planes around a a system. And the way it worked was uh, your VR presence um, saw the airplanes as cones that would be like blue mm-hmm. and if two of the cones the cones represented sort of everywhere those planes could be in the next 10 minutes or something and if the cones intersected each other the intersection would turn red and your job 
was to basically stand there. And so you, it was like you were, you know, some sort of giant colossus. Sure. Um, and you could use the little power glove thing they had to grab an airplane and, and turn it. And so you could turn the plane so they wouldn't run into each other. Um, and Pausch used to point out one of his favorite aphorisms was point of view is worth 50 IQ points that air traffic controlling is, is a very difficult job and sure. highly trained people do it and they burn out all the time. Um, and that they could handle, it was like 25 or 30 airplanes and his daughter, uh, who was like eight at the time could handle, uh, <laughs> like, you know, a hundred airplanes and, right. and enjoy doing it. Um, one of the major issues that they they came up against was just sort of how well adapted humans are to living in reality. Mm -hmm. um, so I participated in a test and I was a, an anomaly. Um, so the nature of the test was they would pop you into a room um, and they'd show you a letter and then the walls would be just covered in letters and you would have to scan the room and see if you could find that letter on the wall or eliminate mm -hmm. the existence of, of letters on the wall. Uh, and so they'd run you through 10 of those things. And then they gave you this little, they called it a doll, but it was a, a swivel uh, fork with a little thing on it uh, where there's a sensor. And then they, took the VR headset and attached it to a stand so that you would be sitting in a chair completely unmoving. And when you move the doll, your head would move the way the doll's head moved. Okay. And then they'd have you do it again. Um, and uh, most people got severely motion sick <laughs> using the doll. Um, I was I was apparently the only person they ever tested that actually uh, got a perfect score with the doll. Really? <laughs> yes. Um, possibly because I don't really get motion sick all that much. Um, but yeah, most people got severely motion sick with the doll, um, and that's a that's a major challenge to those sorts of immersive experience type things. Mm -hmm. Is that humans have you know hundreds of thousands of years of evolution of being out in reality and right. having things work together the way we expect them to um and there's something called the uncanny valley have you heard of this yes yep yes um where we do appreciate better and better approximations of reality but once things get close enough that there's a confusion in our minds between what real real right. is and what this fake real is. Um, there's a strong revulsion. And so I would expect the uncanny Valley uh, and sort of what their experience was, is that that sort of thing um, at, at a, at a grosser level, but still giving people the visual action of movement without the physical sensation of movement to go with it really messes people up um, right and uh as for me you know i'm my sense of smell 
is is you know and sound and everything is integrated like you know if i if i see something and and can't smell it or can't hear it then i think something a little odd is going right, on right right um and so yeah I, I, those are those are major challenges but so, so one of the things that i thought was interesting about that have you seen the ready player one movie i have yes and uh, it was the first time that I ever really understood how you could be fully immersive in a VR world. You know, and they had multiple ways. They had omnidirectional treadmills that they were running on. They had people suspended by ropes or wires. And then they had those heptic feedback suits that you could actually right. feel, you know, the textures of wind or somebody touching you or, or whatever, pain if you got hit by something. So... The only plot problem I have, or, or technical problem, is how those people wore those goggles, but it mimicked what their face was doing in the in the VR. And I was like, <laughs> you know, but I'll let that go. But well, uh, there's the quote from the Matrix uh, when when Morpheus is introducing Neo, um, and he's like what is real right if what you mean if what is real is what you can see and smell and taste and touch then real is just electrical signals being right transmitted by your brain and so they are talking um you know elon musk wants to create brain chip interfaces right the neural link um, thing yeah right um and so if they're gonna solve the problem for real that's pretty much how they have to solve the problem right. for real is, is solve it at the, the data level. And we are, we are hell and gone from, <laughs> from reasonable approximations of the human neocortex and sort of understanding what's going on right. uh, in that kind of a system. So did you, you brought up the matrix there. Did you see the new matrix movie that came out? I did not. Um, I saw I saw two and three and I'm done. Yeah. So I I got up I woke up one morning super early for some reason. It was it came out right around Christmas, I think. And uh I got up super early. I couldn't sleep, so I came downstairs, flipped on the TV, and it was available to watch on TV. So I was like, oh hell, I'll give it a shot. I I don't have anything better to do. I wouldn't recommend watching it unless you're really bored. And you're up early one morning, you have nothing better to do. But it was more like, instead of like, I remember the first Matrix kind of blowing my mind. And then the other two were good stories. Yeah, yeah I, I, was, I was actually able to go into the first Matrix cult. Um, I had read an interview with, I think it was Carrie Fisher, because the, they were interviewing her because the, the Star Wars movies were, mm -hmm. were out. And so people were talking Star Wars stuff and and she was saying that her children or something wanted to go see the matrix and i was like oh I'll, I'll go check that out and so i i hadn't seen any of of anything basically mm -hmm. and that's definitely the way to get introduced to that movie yeah um but uh but yeah uh, i have a i have a real bone to pick with sort of nihilism in sci-fi and the decision to go in that direction in the sequels um, mm -hmm. uh, really turned me off hard. Well, and what, so the, I'm, I'm just going to spoiler alert here. Uh, the premise of the last movie is that they resurrected Trinity and Neo. So through some 
biological slash matrix slash movie magic, they invented two new people um, from their DNA. And then they trapped them in another matrix. And Neo basically thinks he's nuts. He remembers all the things that happened in the first three movies, but he's a game programmer and he, it, it's a game. So he programs okay. this game. That's the premise of the movie. And my problem with the movie was it felt like, like a 25th uh, year class reunion where you got together and you're like, oh, that's what that person looks like now. And all oh, that guy passed away and all oh, that person's successful. And there were some inside jokes only you guys would get, but no new material. It was just like this rehashing of nothing. I got to the end of it. And I'm like, really? Like <laughs> it wasn't, it wasn't that great. And, but what's interesting, I think is as this metaverse deal comes forth and as I watch my, my daughter's almost 10 and how intuitive an iPad is like, she just, it, it makes me feel really old sometimes and I'm fairly technical, technical savvy sort of guy. Um, and I'm struggling with something and she's just like, there you do this. And I'm like, how the hell? But when you watch her play some of the games she plays with her friends, they're very happy to go into a Roblox and build their houses. And um, I'm hoping that I, I think she's still playing it. But for the while, for a while there, she was constantly coming to me. She needed money to buy stuff in the game, and then she figured out she could deliver pizzas. So if she went and delivered pizzas in the game for 35 minutes, she could get more money than if I gave her ten dollars to buy whatever in the game. So it's already implanted in this generation that you can go online and live your life. And granted, it's, it's very one dimensional where she's just looking at a screen, but she's got it. I can see where if you tossed a helmet on her, just like that, she's in. I mean, it's, it's, it's well, very interesting. Yeah. I mean, the, the NFT and the, and the broader crypto ecosystem uh, are based off the the notion that quite a lot of what government and society has on offer is uh, essentially record keeping, mm -hmm. um, and obviously computers are radically better at record keeping than human beings are. Sure. So why not use computers for that record keeping function? Right. Um, and then what does it take to be able to trust something like that? So getting into that gets into the, the mathematics and structure of crypto systems and sort of what can and can't be done with information exchange. Mm -hmm. um, so are you familiar at all with those things? Or? Yeah. You know, I mean, I... A few years ago, I dived into crypto and thought, you know, I should have a garage full of miners and all that stuff and tapped out eventually when I thought, eh, this could make you some money or it looks like you potentially could lose you a lot of money too, depending on how things go, uh, if you're, you know, not set up right. So I, I, I understand the, the premise of blockchain, but um, I, I'm starting to more see... Not, so I feel like there's some benefit of blockchain and I also worry that we're going to lose something 
that we have that's kind of neat in a cash society. That I can just go to your house and buy your used TV for $100 without there being an a impenetrable penetrable trail of where that $100 went. Uh, yeah. Well, that's, that's almost certainly the case. Um, so one of, one of the things I like to point out is that computers are a bigger deal than steam engines. Mm-hmm. And steam engines effectively destroyed the the systems that existed before steam engines existed. Um, and actually, uh, Larry Niven, if you're familiar, is a sci-fi author. He's still alive, but he was a really big Silver Age guy. Um, did some of his best work back in, like, the 70s. Um, sorry, Larry, if you ever hear this. Um, <laughs> but uh, one of his his little you know, hobby horses is that technology informs ethics mm-hmm. because a thing has to be possible before it can be good or bad. Sure. Okay. Um, and so one of the things, if you read the, the sort of social critics at around the time of the adoption of the steam engine and the transformation of you know, this monarchical feudal world into the sorts of governments that we see today um, is that the the people who were in favor of preserving the systems that existed uh, were basically always correct about the consequences that they foresaw. Mm-hmm. What they had missed was that... Um, the possibilities and the values that were adopted basically decide that those things were good. So, right. for example, um, during industrialization, uh, one of the primary sort of new labor forces that were available were females. Mm-hmm. Um, machines were hard to work with, but they were also fiddly and small things. So, children and females had smaller hands and so on and of course they also weren't already fully employed um, you know and so it wasn't uncommon for critics to point out that if females all up and left the villages uh, and moved to cities um, then suddenly the population of rural areas would drop and since 80 percent of all human beings had to live on farms in order to grow enough food to keep all of us alive uh, we would all starve to death. Of course, it turned out that mechanization of agriculture actually meant that a lot less than 80% right. of us had to live on farms. Um, and we haven't all starved to death. And we've decided that, say, going off and getting a job in manufacturing isn't the worst thing that can happen to a human being. Right. Um, so does it seem like those things just... So they foresee these negative things that they... And they're right about, but those things course correct, and it's probably an opportunity for somebody else somewhere along the way too. Well, so that's the trick is, um, well, those these these negative consequences you can see are, are quite real, and they they definitely might be disastrous enough to be worth avoiding. Um, but the challenge is to see whether or not you can come up with a value system that you can embed in that, because that's the real big deal. Mm-hmm. Um, the If you sort of grab the man off the street from today or a century ago 
and ask him like how societies are supposed to function and you do the same thing with somebody from four or eight centuries ago um us and the guy 50 years ago are going to agree on most things and the four and eight century guy ago are also going to agree on most things with each other but there's going to be a lot of stuff that we don't agree with them right and and because of you know it's a a billion times as much capacity uh that that existed you know when when we were born right um we're going to need to expect the existence of values that we don't know what they are yet um that will allow the utilization of this capacity in ways that aren't harmful to us because right now lots of these things are harmful to us uh Well, well, if you just take a look at social media, for example, right now. That's a biggie. (laughs) So that's one of the strangest ones that uh, I look at all the time. And overall, I think social media is a good thing. I just don't think we've figured it out yet. We're getting closer, I think. Maybe. (laughs) But it does seem like there's this... um, There's always this rush to use things wrongly. And then we kind of go back and go, oh, that's how we do this. And the amount of stuff that I see, well, I mean, you know, just take, for instance, a podcast. We can get on here and talk about anything and put it out there. And right or wrong, it's out there. And it's the same with social media. I can say the nuttiest shit and put it in a Facebook or a Twitter post or wherever. But if you met me in person, the odds of me saying that is probably, you know, different than me sitting around at night and I don't think we've quite mastered that yeah yeah that's to make that's life a, fluid that that's a well-known phenomenon that uh distance and anonymity uh, mm-hmm. both lead to very different types of of messages that people are willing to send right versus say face-to-face only conversations in in small groups because that's all that exists right um well, it's even just a text message for that matter. Right. You take a yes. text message, like you read a text message, you're like, yep, what? <laughs> and the there's person's a, just like, okay. There's a hilarious uh, Key and peel skit um, uh, where that's, it's, it's text message confusion. Right. Um, I don't know if you've ever seen it. but I haven't uh, seen that one, no. So one of the two of them is getting high on his couch. And the other one of the two of them, uh, like, wants to go do something. Uh, so he's like, hey, you want to go meet up for drinks? And so the guy's like, whatever. And he's like, what? <laughs> and so yeah. so he starts, like, anger texting. And the other guy is, like, blissed out of his mind. And so he's just sort of casually, you know. Right. And so the first guy has worked himself up into... Um, you know, this this physical confrontation that they're going to have. And the other guy has worked himself out to, oh, I'm going to go have a pleasant time with my right. friend. And they show up at the bar and, you know, the one guy's got like machetes and stuff. <laughs> He's ready to throw down. He, right, exactly. And then he realizes that like everything that's happened is in his head. Right. And this is his friend. Well, I've had that happen to me all, so many times. I, I've gotten emails before and I'm like, what? And so anymore, it used to be I'd start writing a tersely worded email back 
And then anymore, I just pick the phone up and be like, hey, so uh, what's going on? Yeah, how you feeling over there? <laughs> yeah. And then they answer, hey, how are you? And you're like, uh-oh, I might have read something into there. Then you go back and read it, and you're like, oh, I either left a word out in my head or added a word that isn't there at all, you know? Uh, you said something interesting. You said you don't have a cell phone. Uh, yeah. How come? What's your... You're going to freak me out here because it seems like you're deep into technology and all this stuff. Uh, well, I never picked one up in the first place. Really? Um, yeah. And uh, and then it's just always been more convenient not to have one. Um, and then I was at a pitch session where some recently graduated college students uh, got a million dollars so they could buy the location information of every American citizen. Hmm. Um, and uh, I was like, huh, maybe having a cell phone just isn't worth any money at all. <laughs> <laughs> to have an infinite tracker on me all the time. Yeah, I've, I've had a few conversations with those guys, and it was pretty interesting. Um, so they, they developed an app. Um, so they'd gone to UVA, uh, which is mm-hmm. Charlottesville, is where I am. Uh, and they'd been out on frat row and and lost one of their friends and had a pretty serious you know 15 minutes of panic sure uh and and she had quite the worst for wear uh decided to go to sleep in a bush um and so they did they 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 found her Mm -hmm. um so they built a, a fairly simple app um that was sort of a phone finder but also a a a networked friend thing so you could basically activate this thing at which point and, and link other friends with your phone. And then your friends while you, while it was activated would be able to, to sure. check you out. The other thing it did was uh, intercepted drunk texting. So while oh, it was God. active, while it was active, if you attempted to open the chat or a text, it, Basically, we put up a big red, are you sure? No, you're not. Stop now <laughs> type thing on it. I, I understand the danger here, but is this thing still available? Um, it, I'm pretty sure it is. And yes, it was very popular. Because <laughs> um, that seems like I could use that. So, yeah. So they, so they get this thing up. They, they get it out there. They, it, it spreads around the world. And so they start trying to figure out how to monetize what they got. And... Um, so they ask around, uh, you know, does, is anybody willing to buy the location of possibly, you know, promiscuous, uh, Mm -hmm. co-eds and, and they got a lot of offers for that for some reason. Weird. Um, and so, yeah, I, I remember, uh, uh, there's some people in town that run pitching sessions. So I was at one of these things and, uh. Uh, they got about three quarters of the way through the presentation. The woman who was sitting next to me was like, what are they talking about? <laughs> um, and she was, she was a student nurse. I was like, well, imagine uh, somebody wanted to stalk you <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> and was willing to pay somebody for information on everywhere you'd been for the last 10 years. They could sell it to them. <laughs> sure. Purely innocent. <laughs> Purely innocent. But that would be an application right, of this technology. Right. So, yeah, the, 
they were in a pitch session um, that had a uh, like one million dollar cap or something, and so they got funded, they got capped out in the session, and then there was like two other people that presented, and then they met outside the room. And like several of the other friends came in, and they got like the other nine million dollars right. they're also looking for. <laughs> That's awesome, right there. Um, and I'm sure, you know, unless they've all been killed by you know <laughs> right. the Mossad or the CIA or something, they're still out there doing it. Um, the last time I talked to them was about three years ago. Uh, but uh, but yeah, it's it. Uh, the cost-benefit analysis um, in a world where I've got email mm-hmm. uh, just just isn't really there for me. Sure. Are you a social media guy at all, or is is that the same stuff? Same deal. I'm on LinkedIn. Mm-hmm. Um, I was reasonably early adopter there, uh, but uh, but no, not not so much. It is frightening when you when you realize. So I was reading something uh, a while ago about. It might have been a documentary I was watching about how Facebook can take your posts and through their AI basically spit out everything about you. I mean, they can be like FBI profiler from your posts, the shit you like, the the words you use, the places you go, the, they can just, boop, this is this person. Yeah, it's, yeah. It's well, wild. There's, there's a, uh, a short story by Isaac Asimov uh, from... This was a robot novel, so probably, or a robots series, so probably like um, 30s, maybe the 50s. Um, and it's it's late stage. So Asimov had this this idea of these robots, sort of these human form things that would that would do work for people. And the three laws of robotics: the human the robots can't harm humans or, or cause them to come to harm. Um, they have to obey people unless that would conflict with law one. And then they have to preserve their own existence unless that would conflict laws two or one. Right. Um, and so uh, there's about a dozen-ish short stories uh, uh, that star this, this female roboticist who's sort of this robot psychologist that when things go a little wonky she comes out and sort of figures out you know because human beings don't think like robots do sure and so in this story people have worked out that since the three laws kind of make robots super super moral and since they're hyper intelligent instead of building robot brains they're like the size of people brains and putting them inside people-shaped things why not build robot brains that are the size of like you know apartment buildings and just have them run the economy. And so they've done this, they built what are called the thinking machines. And um, what happens is that there's some like protesters that think that people should be running their own economies. And the UN has noticed that their businesses aren't doing so well in the new thinking machine universe. And so they bring in Dr. Susan and their theory is that these people are lying to the machines. Um, and so the machines are giving them bad data back and that's why everything's going sideways. So Susan, you know, goes around or whatever, thinks about it and comes back and, and gives her report. And she's like, okay, number one, it's impossible to lie to the machines because they're getting data from everywhere 
everywhere. So if you say, you know, up and everyone else on Earth says down, sure. they know it's down. <laughs> they know you're, you're right. lying. The second thing is you can't disobey the machines because, again, they know everything that's everywhere. So if you're like, well, I'll just do 10% more than what they tell me to do, the machine can figure that out and just give you 91% of what it wants you to do. Sure. And you'll just do what you're supposed, what you're right. well supposed to do. Right. Um, so since you can't lie to the machines and you can't disobey the machines, if things are going wrong, it's because the machines need them to go wrong somehow. And so essentially what's happened is the thinking machines have realized that these people aren't really like a happy part of the economy and so while they can't hurt them and they're not going to kill them they are going to just make it so that they don't really participate sure in the working economy anymore by having their 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 systems fail um and that's basically the end of the short story there's no sort of greater right. dig into that um in an environment where we have these sort of angelic, hypermoral machines making those decisions, it's vaguely possible for some people. Like, I don't think I'd be in favor of that, but I can imagine <laughs> people being in favor of it. But in our universe, where right. <laughs> where other human beings are on the on the other side of that thing, right. uh, I can't see a defense no. for for that position. Yeah, I. If this past year hasn't shown us anything, is that shit can get really weird quick. So, throw out some super intelligent uh, mind control robots, and Lord knows what might happen. So, yeah, <laughs> it's hard to say. Um, so, I, I really want to talk to you about the NFTs. So, can you break down? I can't even begin to understand what they are. I sort of see like little pictures of cats and weird shit, but I, I, I don't understand why it's worth any money. And, and I could get, so I thought I understood it at one point. I thought at one point it was like a concert ticket. So it was like blockchain for a concert ticket. So, you know, you're not getting a scalped or fake ticket and it's 100% legit and it has 100% of its value. And I could give that to, you know, to sell it to you and you would know it's legit. So that's, that's a theoretical application of the NFT technology, but the NFT is at basis of technology. Okay. And the, the key is the difference between fungibility and non-fungibility. So fungibility just means replaceability. Okay. So um, blockchain is most famous. You've got bitcoins. Bitcoins are interchangeable. If you have Bitcoin number three and I have Bitcoin number 487, they are, within the context of everything, perfectly equally valuable. Okay. Makes sense. And this works roughly the same way that currency works. Mm -hmm. um, if the serial number on your bill is, you know, this 10-digit number and on my bill it's this other 10-digit number, nobody gives a crap. They're both just a dollar. Right, right, right. Um, so the concept of the NFT is that what if we gave a crap, basically? What if there really was a one-to-one -one correspondence between this thing and nothing else could ever be a duplicate of this thing? 
So concert tickets, a ephemeral thing that will lose value at a, at a given time uh, become a, a reasonable approximation. But there's lots and lots of economic objects that aren't fungible. Um, for example, land, which is getting into what the metaverse is talking about, of buying land and so okay. on. Um, you know, I own my house, you own your house. Maybe, uh, let's say we're both on the same amount of land. We would not regard these as interchangeable just because they're both in the United States and they're both the same square footage. Okay. Um, location, location, location sure. matters. Um, so by being able to create this technology that enables the existence of an object that has this uniqueness, um, then these other sorts of applications exist. Now, of course, the sort of leading and most popular application are these, let's call them frivolous, uh, <laughs> uh, sort of art project type things where you get to have a number that nobody else on earth gets to have um, because it's been set up to be that way that you get to have a number that nobody else on earth gets to have. And then because it's possible to do procedural generation, um, which again, going back to games, there's, there are games that have designed levels and there's games that, that sort of generate their levels using mm -hmm. random seeds. So if you have the ability to create sort of creature dynamics or pictures or something else based on random seeds, each NFT can, can seed out that algorithm and then give you a picture that nobody else can, can pull off because they wouldn't have the NFT to put into the machine to spit out the, the answer. Okay. Um, so are we seeing right now kind of a novelty use of that? We're seeing primarily novelty use, but again, potentially there are other sorts of applications. Um, so, uh, so you could use, uh, yeah. You were well, I was something. gonna say, was it kind of like when cryptocurrency first came about? Like nobody seriously, at the very beginning, bought things with cryptocurrency. But now I could go buy a, you know, a car. Uh, in some places with cryptocurrency, it's it's going to take a while to to prove itself out, and then it'll sort of become mainstream. Mainstream. Well, yeah, and and we'll see. I mean, uh, cryptocurrency is going to be competing with uh, currencies that have political viability, right? Um, and that that again could get very very weird very very quickly. Sure. <laughs> um, NFTs at the same time would also be competing with that. Uh, so right now, land ownership is a literally a record-keeping process that's carried out by governments in the United States, local governments. Um, so in the future, your deed could be an NFT for your, and your property. An NFT deed, yes, is a perfectly valid way to use that technology. And, and it would be the that deed uh, could could behave in all of the ways that we need deeds to behave. Sure. Um, and it gets rid of all that wonkiness of 
grandpa had a an heir somewhere and this came right down the the pike from person to person to person to person and there's nothing to dispute basically it it could get rid of that wonkiness again that that has to do more with how you design the system and and uh the incentives and so on that you, mm-hmm. you put next to it um one thing that that very plausibly could happen is that with a much greater ability to slice and dice um, that we might decide to slice and dice a a great deal more Um, so i could see an nft based you know land registry Mm -hmm. uh getting to the point where it's like selling land by the square centimeter or something sure and so rather than having a deed that covers, I'm on, I think about a sixth of an acre here, but you know, I would actually own billions of NFTs. <laughs> right, 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 right. As, as sort of, you know, every dirt particle had its own. <laughs> right, right, right. Um, and, and with, you know, storage doubling every year, uh, you know, 10 years from now i'm like really they got a petabyte on this thing you know? <laughs> right. um so that isn't necessarily a better world to live in mm-hmm. <laughs> where where things have gotten that complicated but it's it's definitely a possible world to live in um and and some people might try something like that out uh so doesn't it seem like all this stuff so an NFT like this, for example, let's just say in the United States, they came out in the next year and they said, we aren't going to go to the courthouse to keep land records anymore. It's going to be this digital asset and we're going to have a server room in every state that records everybody's. Doesn't it seem like all of a sudden we're making way for that science fiction movie or show that you talked about that a machine can look at all that and go, well... There's all this land over here, and they've owned this forever, and it would be better if there was something here than, like, because now it's harder to do that. Like, if you try and go find out landowners right now, you have to go to the courthouse. I mean, you're lucky if you can find it online, and then you still have to go to the courthouse and go through the records and flop through books. Well, there's there's an Australian movie. Um, I think it's called something like The Castle. Um, And uh, Eric Bana like one of his first films uh and it's it's hilarious and and it's sort of you know one of these true story things and it's it's basically inspiring it's this sort of successful working class australian guy who who lives in a shack more or less next to the airport and um the the great and the good put together the plan and decide that they're going to extend the airport and uh take his land from him and he's like, okay, cool. Uh, it's my land, and I don't want to sell it to you. <laughs> um, and it's it's one of these cases where you know ultimately this is their Supreme Court, and they're mm-hmm. like, uh, yes, you aren't allowed, in fact, to buy things without the consent of the owners. <laughs> right. <laughs> so go back to the drawing board. Sure. Um, but uh, you know, like we in this country have failed that test. Mm-hmm. Um, there was uh, the case in, it was at uh, Connecticut, I think, uh, where the city basically said, you know, 
we're only getting X in property taxes from these family homes and we could get, you know, Y times X right. if, if a developer bought them. So what if we just eminent domain these things and, and switched them over? Uh, and well, the Supremes did say, okay, you can't, you can't do that. Right. Um, they did leave the door open and say, you know, there's a sort of broader context of, of what cities are and are not allowed to do, you know, governments are and are not allowed to do around property. And yes, if, if we get into a digital property system, what would be possible are what's programmed into the limits of that system. Right. Um, and it's, actually fairly hard to anticipate the limits of a computational system. Um, so such a thing would have to be designed very carefully from the outset to, to operate in a way that would be conductive to sure. having things like that not happen. So that reminds me of just not too far away from here. Uh, there was a, a cheese factory of all things that wants to move into this little bitty town. I mean, tiny, tiny town might, if they have a thousand people that live there, I'd be shocked, but they were trying to take a farm and take the farmland and turn it in, like give it over to the cheese factory because of the tax base and everything. And when we were thinking about our, our magic land computer that looks at all the deeds, it seems like at some point the, the argument could be made, the computer could look and go, Hey, we need 200 acres to build our cheese factory. And it kind of looks through all the property and says, just because Bob, the county commissioner, drove by the farm and thinks that'd be a great place for it, doesn't mean it's the best place. The computer or your AI can look around and go, well, there's actually a rail siding over here, and this land isn't used for anything. It's not farmed. And go, boop. So at some point, it seems like there could be yeah, a, an application. There's a lot of there's a lot of potential upsides for those sorts of things, sure. and those sorts of increased efficiencies, or I think more important than efficiencies is capacities. Because mm -hmm. the thing that's really important about industrialization, the reason why human wealth exists today, and and in any practical sense didn't exist five centuries ago, um, is that machines and engines can do work more cheaply than human beings can. Right. Um, and faster. Well, it faster actually, I mean, that's, that's nice, but it, it ultimately doesn't matter compared to expense. Mm -hmm. um, before, before we had efficient heat engines, the most efficient heat engines on earth were human bodies. And that's basically because we can digest cooked food. And so we don't have to spend as much energy to extract energy from the food sure. that we eat. So we extract more energy from the food that we eat because we, you know, use wood to digest some of it. Sure. Um, but then you could, you know, dig this black stuff out of the ground and for a couple of pennies, get the work of a strong man for a week. Right. You can't pay him a couple pennies. Like he right. needs to eat. He needs to sleep, sure. you know, all that stuff. So a gallon of gasoline um, has an extraordinary amount of energy compared to like what a human being can, can sure. produce. And well, yeah, the cost is going up. 
it's a lot less than you pay a human being to do that <laughs> right. much work. Right, right, right. Um, computers are the same thing. Computers are control structures that are cheaper than using human brains to do those sorts of problems. Um, and so finding applications that allow us to exploit that in ways that we can trust and understand and utilize offers potentially much greater, you know, things like you're talking about, you know, some sort of marriage system between people who need new factory space and people who don't really need 200 acres. <laughs> right, right. Um, which, which doesn't necessarily have to be one person if we've got some sort of, you know, every blade of grass has its own deed right, because right. we can just because we've got a petabyte you know in our back pockets and we can just store all that right then suddenly it can like what you're talking about you know these 20 people who all have this thing that they don't care about which is where you need it to be and, and the size that you need it to be could could each get their piece right. and all of them will agree if 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 it comes to it right um so that yeah but that's that's got a lot of upside potential and we we could see societies becoming much wealthier if we can solve those problems but they are problems and sure. we haven't solved them <laughs> right 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 are you doing okay on time uh yeah yeah uh, I, I, i'm i've got uh a scheduled thing in an hour and a half. All right. So, so I got a couple more questions if you don't mind, because <laughs> sure. you do a really good job explaining things. Um, but w something I've, I wonder about and I'm, I'm worried about that, uh, you know, going along with what we were talking about, as we slide more and more into this digital world where everything, like I, I never go to the bank anymore. Like I run a business and I never go to the bank. Everything's online. My money's in some place in Tennessee, I guess, <laughs> and I can see it online. But I do worry that one day the lights will go out and everything's gone. Do you worry about that as someone that works in this if and thinks about it? If we don't solve the problems, that's, that's basically what's happening. I mean, um, some crazy sunspot, asteroid, you know, global catastrophe type deal. Uh, I am less worried about those sorts of issues because societies societies that can operate resiliently uh, can cope with disasters. My concern is rather that we have these capacities and we haven't solved these problems that we're talking about and that if we don't solve them, they're going to, they're going to tear us apart all by the, themselves. Um, so, We've got computers. Unless we abandon the existence of computers, we're going to have the problems of having computers. Mm -hmm. uh, steam engines wiped out religions, governments. You know, we we should expect our institutions to need to undergo similar degrees of reform and 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 creation mm -hmm. as pre-industrial societies did. Um, if we can't solve those problems, we should expect those institutions to collapse in, you know, the, the reason they had to reform is because once everybody's a lot richer and living in cities and, mm -hmm. you know, able to get on the train, um, 
the sorts of legal systems and, and social philosophies that work perfectly fine for keeping a bunch of serfs on the farm didn't function at all for, right, right. for that sort of civilization. Um, and we're seeing this now uh, with the sorts of pressures that, that countries are under and sort of how bad they are at coping with the mm -hmm. sorts of crises that, that are coming up. Um, uh, and so if we don't come up with institutions that can be valuable to us and, and be used, then we're going to be stuck with the institutions we have. Sure. And those are inadequate. Right. And, and civilizations with inadequate institutions uh, can be found in museums around the world. <laughs> right. We read about them. We don't go see them. <laughs> right. Yes. Right. Yeah. I can't point you to any of those because <laughs> they don't last too long. Do you think technology is pulling the veneer off of everything that people kind of have for the longest time? So you had a king or a, a president and you kind of thought they were, I don't want to say an all-knowing being, but in the past 20 years, especially in my life, all of a sudden you're like, oh, that's just a regular guy. And maybe it's just getting older. I don't know. But it, it's taken a lot of the, the shine off of a lot of people that uh, when you can kind of see them 24-7 and, and you can actually hear, hear somebody sit down in a podcast and have a conversation for, you know, a half hour instead of a little soundbite on Johnny Carson at night. All of a sudden you're like, oh, this guy's flawed. Like, do you think it's changing I, the world? I hear people saying that and I... I'm sort of willing to, to believe that that's the case. Um, for me personally, my grandfather was a, a lobbyist um, and he was pretty much retired by the time I was, you know, sitting in his living room hearing stories. But that, that was a part of my childhood was hearing stories. <laughs> um, and so the, the veneer was sort of, sandblasted away <laughs> for you. before before sure. I got to even see the, the sure. shiny parts. Um, I recall, uh, this isn't an early one, um, I think I was maybe 16 or 17 at the time, and so he was basically retired, but uh, it was when uh, Foley was Speaker of the House, um, and Tom Foley's wife, while he was Speaker of the House, was a lobbyist uh and and she had been a lobbyist for quite some time and she was a friend of my grandfather's and he was he was on boards and, and a few things sort of keeping his hand in and it i think it was some sort of uh just local matter um it was you know like some sort of charity type thing that that, that he wanted to do um but they wanted Tom Foley to, you know, come down some particular mm -hmm. way uh, on doing something. And so she was like, yeah, I got this. That's, that's cool. And he hadn't heard back for, for a couple of days. So he, he calls her up and he's like, you know, what's, you know, what, what's the progress? What's, what's the thing? And she's like, yeah, I, I, you know, I haven't, I haven't talked to him yet. I'm going to hit him tonight uh, in the bath. Uh, because with with stuff like this, I like to ask for it when he's naked. Oh. Um, and, 
and yeah you start thinking about that like a lot of these people actually do have that, that, that that's that's like how they work the, mm-hmm. the other members of the family are lobbyists and then they have normal family lives and then right. you know these questions this one wasn't i think particularly nationally critical but right. you could easily imagine <laughs> right right there are you multiple know, the, scenarios there right yeah yeah these these are people who are making decisions that that have global impact and the people they're interacting with to make those decisions are at the table with them at thanksgiving right uh or in bed with them. <laughs> right, right, right. Because I know, I know there's opinions that I won't share with my wife just because I know it'll make her mad. Not many, but there are some I'm just like, mm, all right, we'll just go with that. So I can see, and we're talking very mild things that have no consequences. So I can see where that could be a, a serious issue. Yeah. Um, and, and if we're going to go into a world where enormous quantities of these information and decisions and so on are fully granularized and online and and available to these you know machine intelligences if if we crack Mm -hmm. that or or even just available in sort of publicly developable ways um then we're used to these systems that are from that point of view flexible cringily <laughs> corrupt yes. is the word i might use <laughs> what what sorts of outcomes might we expect from these these other systems um you know like i right. i don't know the answer to that question nobody does um and so it's it's very much a, a values based thing of deciding sort of what what right and wrong is and how we're going to recognize sure. error and and do what's necessary to punish it um because there actually is still one crowned head of europe that runs his own country um but he it's the bill of rights you know his people have freedom of expression and mm-hmm. and, and you know the right to bear and, and on and on, you know, jury sure. trials and so on. So, you know, somebody like King Charles II, in theory, could have not gotten his head cut <laughs> off right. if he'd had the, the godlike vision to sort of realize what the like, U.S. Constitution looks like sure. and grant the rights of Englishmen 200 years ahead of schedule <laughs> right. or whatever. Uh, but it's it's a big ask to, yes. <laughs> to, to 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 be mired in the system that is and foresee the values necessary for the system that will replace it especially uh, in those days um, could you imagine yeah like yeah. you you just have to have somebody ride a horse and tell you things that are happening well, in other places you know there's a a famous quote from louis the 14th i am the state <laughs> And that, that was a true statement. He was the state. Mm-hmm. Um, and Louis XV uh, was asked, his, his court was highly corrupt and very dissolute. And he was asked about what would happen, you know, you know, 
look at all these trends. Everything seems to be going the wrong direction. Where do you think this is going to go? And he said, after me, the deluge, <laughs> um, basically referring back to the story of Noah, that mm-hmm. like, I'm going to be fine. Yeah. Then, then you know, God, God's, <laughs> and his son is Louis the Sixteenth, um, who, of course, along with his wife and large amounts of French aristocracy, uh, get their heads chopped off. Sure. Um, I would prefer not to go through that kind of, of thing, but it's 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 really not up to me. It's sure. it's up to people who are successful and in charge how they want to fail. Um, and if they they choose a bad road, there's there's not much you can do to save them. Right, right. So I have one last question for you. And I saw it somewhere. I, I was just looking on the, your, your profile page I was pulling up here. But I saw somewhere that you were either an expert or very well-versed in game theory. And I hear people use that term a lot. And most of the time, it it's, doesn't seem like it gets used right. So could you kind of simply explain what game theory is? Sure. Uh, Yeah, and game theory might be the worst name ever chosen. (laughs) Game theory is the mathematics of decision-capable agents. And the simplest way to think about this is it's the mathematics of strategy. Okay. Perhaps the most consequential uh, application of game theory in human history was uh, American nuclear strategy of mutually assured destruction. Sure. Which is based on a very simple game um, <laughs> of, of launch or not launch. So mm-hmm. there's two players, the U.S. and the Soviet Union. Either player can launch or not launch. Um, and it's, it's essentially a game of chicken. Mm-hmm. Um, and in chicken, if you don't want people to, uh, you know, steer straight, what you need to do is just make the consequences of the crash bad enough that it's not worth right. any level of risk. Thus, build a whole bunch of these things, <laughs> right. put them on, put them on rockets that can go halfway around the world in, in you know, 15 minutes and, uh, and, and have two psychopaths staring at each other with their <laughs> finger on the trigger right and then nobody's gonna do nothing <laughs> right 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 okay so basically it's just because every time i hear it it's it's uh always somebody talking about how if they do this that person's gonna do that and gotcha it's game theory and i'm just like i don't think sort that, of that that is that's pretty much what's going on um but the key to game theory is that you can basically encapsulate all of the this than that type possibilities. Mm-hmm. Um, this is really only practical on a on a human level for very simple games. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, once you've done that, then there are then there are mathematical tools that allow you to analyze that. Um, so the Nash equilibrium is the most famous of these. Uh, and if you've seen A Beautiful Mind, there's actually a, a scene in there of, of John Nash making the Nash equilibrium breakthrough in the uh, hitting on the girls scene. Um, okay. So the he's hanging out with his boys from 
the the economics department or, or whatever, and and, uh, and some girls come into the bar, and there's a hot blonde, and then like her three friends, and he's there with his three friends, and so the friends all start you know straighten themselves up and getting ready, and and the girls know what's about to happen, the guys know what's about to happen, and the guys are like you know let's do our Adam Smith, the everyone succeeds you know if if everybody does what's best for themselves and nash says no everybody does succeeds if everybody does what's best for themselves and the group so what you need to do is don't hit on the blonde because if we all go over there and hit on the blonde she's got four choices she turns us all down and then when we go for our second choice the the plain girls are like well Come on. Right, right, right. <laughs> I just saw you on my I'm my a consolation friend. prize. That's right. I am not going to be a consolation prize. But if the boys all go over and directly hit, then number one, the girls know that the blonde's the hot one. So suddenly they're even more special. And so you close the deal and sure you don't get the top prize, but you get the second prize and you weren't getting the top prize anyway, even if right. you shot for it. Right. Um and so that kind of situation can exist uh, in, in, in various equilibrium. Um, but the, the number of strategic situations increases incredibly quickly as the number of options increases. Uh, and so as a practical way to solve, say, chess, game theory is of very low value. Mm -hmm. um, it needs to be these sort of relatively small number of players, relatively small number of, of choices types of situations. Okay. Now, caveat to that, there's something called evolutionary game theory where large numbers of players can all play a game in a repeated fashion uh, under certain circumstances where they will, they will, as a group, behave like sort of single joint players of sure. the entire group. And so evolutionary game theory allows us to recognize strategic situations in like hunter-prey relationship situations and things like that. Um, uh, or what I use it for uh, market design and development where you have large numbers of participants in the marketplace, but by giving them a set of roles and a set of actions within the role, you can simplify the thing into a, a structure that can actually be mathematically analyzed and, and, and worked through what's going on. Perfect. I think that makes a, a lot more sense than the way I understood it before. Well, Noah, it's been a great conversation. I've, I've really had a good time. I, I really appreciate you doing this and sitting down, and maybe someday in the future we'll, we'll do it again. Uh, yeah, yeah, I'm happy to do it. Uh, I, uh, I'm happy that I'm good at explaining things. I've been, <laughs> I've been working on trying to figure out how to do that for the last five years or so. Well, you, you did an awesome job. I, I really, really appreciate it. Uh, if anybody wants to find out more about you, where, where's a good place for them to go check out uh, some of your work or information? Uh, I have a website um, promoting the market idea that I was just talking about uh, at CordDisc, C-O-O-R-D-I-S-C, um, Coordinated Discovery, 
sort of portmanteau there. Um, you can also reach out to me on LinkedIn, the one and only social media <laughs> site that I'm actually on. Uh, I'm Noah Healy on there. Um, okay. I will put that stuff in the show notes so everybody can click on it and find you. And uh, I appreciate this. Yep. Thank you. Yep. Have a good night. Bye. Let's see you.